Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Caves Across Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And today we're talking about one of our favorite subjects, Jesus. Yeah. Believe it or not, a Christian (laughs) apologetics podcast is going to be talking about Jesus. Oh, man. Yeah. So, Left field. Yeah, John James Anderson here has worked us up to this particular area. Actually, the last couple of chapters, he's been dealing with these questions like God is there, God is not silent, and then God with us. It's kind of right. a echo of Francis uh, Schaeffer. Yeah, there. Francis yeah. Schaeffer. Yeah. Right. All the good yeah. books. Yeah. <laughs> Christian Manifesto, throw that in there too. That's yeah. a pretty decent one to see. Oh, wow. He was kind of a prophet. And if you uh, let the culture kind of slip away and cultural Christianity kind of flourishes. This is what we get. Neither culture nor Christianity yeah, comes about. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, Dr. Anderson here is uh, is kind of pointing us towards, uh, obviously, if we're talking about worldview, a big central theme of the Christian worldview is the thing that makes us Christ. Christians. Yeah, that's right. And that's, of course, uh, Jesus. So the Christ part. Yeah. <laughs> And it's okay with an X because that's the Greek version. So you're that's more right. holy if you actually <laughs> denote it as Xmas, right. as long as you can explain the X. <laughs> so he starts out uh, with the book uh, of, of that uh, will probably be more annoying than uh, Bible believers <laughs> is uh, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And he starts out with the question of who is John Galt? Yeah. So again, this one, this particular chapter is about God right. is uh, God with us. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yeah. He wants to kind of answer the question of, well, who is God yeah. and what does that mean? So yeah. he starts out by saying this question of uh, who is John Galt. And so who is John Galt? Right. Well, that, that, that's where it starts out. And so, yeah. so obviously I have to bring out my uh, Atlas oh, Shrugged. That's right. And so th- the proper reading order for any Ayn Rand is first Anthem, because it's essentially 1984 close. Then you do the Fountainhead. I do have Anthem, but uh, some... Terrible person in college stole it from me, but out of all of them. So Fountainhead is definitely, I think, the more superior novel. But if you want kind of the objectivist philosophy, uh, Atlas Shrugged does that. And um, no bad stuff ever came out of uh, out of Ayn Rand. But uh, (laughs) but it's interesting to see where kind of the objectivist libertarian anarchist movement uh, currently uh, as resides in the West uh, kind of stem from or. Uh, can uh, lend allegiance to, um, you know, there was a split between Murray Rothbard and Ayn Rand and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, so Rand was a 20th century philosopher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so this objectivist philosophy is she was trying to root kind of morality, ethics, economics, all in the central theme of uh, kind of um, uh, th- that there there is an objective world and that we're, uh, we can search it out through um uh, the reason philosophy, where that objecti- objectivity comes from, uh, you know that that's that's where we would kind of disagree with her on. Uh, her, she was vehemently uh, atheistic, right, but yeah. uh, I don't really know if that fully came out of uh, the philosophy, but it came out of her philosophy. And so when she asks uh, this question of who is John Galt, which is kind of this central looming figure in um, Atlas Shrug, he's kind of almost a Christ-like figure in that book, and that he can do no wrong, and he's the the objective. Uh, objective man uh, type deal. Uh, but uh, uh, the reason that uh, uh, Anderson p- points us to, to that question is uh, Rand's novel is much admired in some circles, but if you don't know who John Galt is, you needn't lose any sleep over oh, it. Oh, so he's not that big. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, if, if this is the first time you've heard about Ayn Rand or The Fountainhead or uh, Atlas Shrugged, you know, 
maybe uh, you've never lost sleep over it before. So, <laughs> And you should. Right. <laughs> but Galt's identity matters to the plot of the novel, of course, but he's a fictional character and his identity has little, if any, bearing in our everyday lives. And we would say that. But the same cannot be said for who is Jesus. Mm. There's so many people that talk about who Jesus is from Eastern uh, philosophies, religions, to uh, Islam, to e- even Judaism at, at some varying capacity uh, talks about Jesus. Right. And of course, among mainstream historians, there's no question that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person, right? He was a Jewish teacher who lived in the first half of the first century A.D. In fact, uh, uh, Anderson tells us that the abbreviation that he used, A.D., underscores this point that he's trying to make. Why not? Western calendar uh, takes for granted that Jesus was a real historical person. Yeah, it's on the moon, even. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we use BCE and uh, uh, Common Era. That's right. CE. That's right. Yeah. Before but, but, the Common what, Era. What's that Common Era, though? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, not just uh, Jesus wasn't just any historical individual, right? right? Indeed. But one with such an enormous significance that Anderson tells us that an entire civilization would center its dating system. On his birth. Right. Right? Pretty good for someone who never existed and history never talks about, (laughs) if you kind of believe those people that want to take that. But not even Bert Ehrman would would agree with that. That's right. Well, of course, that does not deny that there are other uh, influential people in history that shaped our worldview. Uh, Moses, Muhammad, uh, Buddha, Karl Marx, Charles Darwin. Uh, Obviously, there are people that are are, um, kind of... Uh, we hear the echoes uh, or, or who have a big impact on, yeah, on us now yeah. in science in or in economics, of, politics. Yeah, yeah, of our culture um, and that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, or just how the world got its shape as far as different um, different countries and, and uh, different influences within um, you know entire continents were, were changed by some of these people. But even if most people who aren't Christian recognize the remarkable significance of Jesus and his impact, he does have this big impact in the course of human history, and that's uh, kind of without a doubt. I mean, uh, you can almost say that uh, the the decline of the Roman Empire brought up the rise of, of Christianity in that it, there was there had to be something that kind of took its place of yeah. of such a powerful domain. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, and um, and it's one that. Uh, conquered kings, and uh, they conquered in the name of Christ, uh, whether good or bad. That's another uh, topic of conversation. But uh, <laughs> but uh, it's clear that Jesus does have a uh, just as big impact, if probably not more, uh, um, in the history of, of mankind. Yeah. So so what uh, Anderson wants to do in this chapter is uh, you know give the Christian view of Jesus. He wants to summarize the Christian view and explain why it's reasonable to believe what Christians believe about Jesus, right? So he says one of the earliest statements of the Christian beliefs uh, is the Apostles' Creed, right? So what does the Apostles' Creed say? Uh, in the beginning was the word, no. <laughs> so it, uh, it goes, uh, uh, I, I believe in God the Father, uh, the the maker of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to hell. Although that uh, is the big term, uh, uh, depending on what side of the the, uh, the historical plot point you uh, uh, find yourself. But then it goes on to say, the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So you know one of the kind of the the bullet points of, right. of history. So so on the one hand, the, the creed, creed affirms yeah. that uh, 
you know, Jesus was real, historical, flesh and blood human mm-hmm. being. He was conceived and born and suffered and died and all that sort of thing, just like, you know, we all do right? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as humans. But the creed also reflects the, the Christian conviction that Jesus wasn't merely a human being, right? He was also uniquely the son of God, right? Right. So that's so that the creed gets us there, and that's an early historical, you know, uh, uh, representation statement about who Jesus was. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a later Christian confession, the Nicene Creed, states more precisely what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. And no, it didn't make any determinations on you know bringing in new things. It was to clarify. It was responding to heresy and. Uh, We've covered that uh, once or twice before as well. It doesn't mean merely that Jesus has a special relationship with God or a special role with God's plans. It means something infinitely more profound. And that's the fact that Jesus is actually divine. It's he, he makes claims. He, he uh, takes on worship. He, uh, he performs things that, that no mere creature uh, could, could possibly do uh, without being um, essentially crazy or, uh, powerful in th- their own right, I right. guess. And, and, of course, Anderson is going to point these things out to us as, right. w- as we go along. Yeah. Right? That's what this chapter is about. Yeah. So just as the human son shares the nature of his father, both are essentially humans, even though they're distinct persons, so the son of God shares the nature of his father. Uh, both the father and the son are essentially uh, divine, even though they're distinct persons. And so. so I think this is a pretty interesting kind of uh, an analogy that he makes, right? The human sons share the nature of their father, the Son of God shares the nature of the Father. Right. That's kind of an interesting right. way to put that. Yeah. You know? uh, there, there are ties, and we'll cover that to Old Testament. There's a reason that uh, Son of Man uh, kind of uh, t- takes on a, 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 a moniker for Jesus a lot of times. Um, there's reasons that uh, people get angry when he calls himself the Son or equal or uh, put, puts himself uh, in in kind of a, 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 a different type of close relationship than, oh, you know, we're all just sons and daughters of God and right, that right. You know, we're all created yeah, by him. Yeah, it's, it's a little yeah. bit different yeah. when people want to stone you for what you <laughs> yeah. say there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, this conviction about the divinity of Jesus wasn't a late, you know, development in the no. history of Christianity. Well, it happened really early. Some modern scholars claim that. Uh, as well, uh, he's going to show in this chapter that it's firmly rooted in the claims of Jesus' first disciples, mm-hmm. right? indeed, uh, in Jesus' own teachings. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, he wants to let us know that it's worth taking a moment to consider how this view of Jesus' true identity fits into the broader Christian world. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, he asked the question, kind of, uh, why did God become man? And so it says it's been noted a number of times that once uh, that one of the virtues of a worldview can exhibit is uh, coherence, so right. that it it kind of is internally consistent, uh, right. kind of uh, among us. all the ideas fit together. Kind right. Of thing, right. So it's one of the reasons Without why contradiction. That's right. We we don't just take out a piece because the whole informs each other's uh, kind of uh, truth claims as right. well. So um, yes, you can talk about things individually, but. To, 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 to remove it completely from it. And, you know, like when you're talking about, oh, well, God is love, right? But so when he judges you, that means he's not love. Well, no, no, it's the entirety of the picture That's that right. has to speak to it. You can Good. talk about yeah. God's love, but you can also talk about God's love in his relationship to uh, grace or judgment or, or what have you. So, so uh, yes. Because yeah, he's also just, right? Mm-hmm. He's also right. holy and righteous. Right? So, so more think about not taking a slice out, but focusing in. 
So the coherence of the Christian worldview gives us a preliminary reason to believe Christianity's claims about the divinity of Christ. It doesn't work all together. Let's uh, kind of look at the the worldview impact uh, as far as does it does it make sense internally amongst itself. And so right. that's what Christians and presuppositionalists like ourselves invite people to do is look internally at uh, uh, whether or not both sides are being consistent. And this is what we would present as a um, coherent, consistent worldview that right. we want people to 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 take on and see what what would that mean if uh, this would be, this was the case. Yeah. So if this worldview is indeed true and it's consistent, right? It's it's uh, then what are the various aspects of it, and why? How does Jesus' divinity, the fact that he's God, fits into that? Right? Mm-hmm. And so he suggests that if it's reasonable to believe that there's a transcendent, holy, personal God, it's also reasonable to believe, you know, we're under his judgment because he's holy and righteous, right? And we're sinners. But because God's goodness includes compassion and mercy, so again, as you mentioned, we kind of look at the whole aspect of God, Mm -hmm. not just some, you know, portion of it. So his goodness includes compassion and mercy as well as holiness and justice. It's reasonable to believe that God has provided some way for us to escape the terrifying prospect of divine judgment, right? He is, uh, you know, uh, compassionate and merciful and loving, but he's also holy and just. We're sinners, and so sin, this rebellion against God, and therefore unholiness, has to be dealt with, mm. or he's not just, right? Right, right. And so, uh, you know, how do we get delivered? Well, that deliverance would require some kind of uh, way to reconcile us, you know, together with God, right? He, uh, you know, as he and he, it's called atonement, right? He uses that word. It's an act that cancels out the sin which has broken our relationship with God, so that we can be reconciled again, brought back together in a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. So Paid our debt to society, exactly. our debt to God. Now debt to God, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of one of the reasons that we look at the Old Testament and we see that happen again and again, like the flood. The, could God have wiped out all of humanity? Yes, he is perfectly uh, just to do that. He could have recreated it. But why doesn't he? Well, he doesn't because he wants to redeem, and he knows that the evil of the world will rise up once again, but it's showing the 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 gravity of the situation where he wipes out all but essentially eight people within this, this, you know, family structure. And then he builds the world up from it again. So, um, so there's his, uh, his mercy and compassion again of, of wanting to save his, his original creation, not just starting over from yeah. scratch. Good. Yeah. So the only person who could make an adequate atonement, right? So who, who could, who could stand in our place? Like, you know, yeah. oh, who, we, who we, could we, reconcile us to God? We, right? we, who we, could take God's hand and our hand and put us together. Goats right. and bulls. That's Goats right. and bulls. Uh, and doves, if we're poor, we divide them up. <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's good enough. Right. Well, no, there's you a reason. have a dove, yeah. please. Yeah, here's, here's a penny. Yeah. You take his one leg and I'll take another. <laughs> so who would be the person who is both human and divine that could bridge that gap? That could be, and it's not even, it couldn't even be half and half, right? right. That's yeah. that's an important yeah. point of, or a mixture of, of certain qualities, but both fully human and fully divine. Human, so that he could suffer the penalty of death on our behalf, on, on humanity's half, mm-hmm. but also divine, so that his life would be absolutely flawless and his sacrifice would be sufficient, sufficiently valuable to pay the price, not merely for one other human life, but any number of human lives. And not just 
that at that moment in time, but throughout all history, yeah. both and, before that point in time and after that yeah, point in time. Exactly. And the price, of course, was death, right? Because the wages or the payment for sin is death, yeah. right? We That's eternal separation from God. He's a holy and righteous God. He doesn't want any can't doesn't want anything to do with sin and so the the price for sin is separation is death right and so we how is that price paid for mm-hmm. right and of course that's how we get us how we get to Jesus right. right the problem of human sin requires a solution that fits this problem and Jesus as the perfect god man right represents the perfect sacrifice for sin mm-hmm. Right, so he can, as it were, grab God's hand, grab our hand, because he's both God and man. And so he tells us that we can see that what Christianity claims about the basic human problem, our sinfulness, our separation from God, the uh, deserving deservedness of our death, right, and uh, of what it claims about Jesus as the solution to that problem, kind of go hand in hand together. Mm-hmm. That's what he tells. And so Jesus of, solves that problem. Mm-hmm. Who Jesus is in terms of being both God and man solves the pro- the human problem of sin and death that we have. Right. And pointing back to kind of the last chapter where we came from, where we talked about, well, why not Judaism? Well, Judaism still has this this Messiah that's still waiting, and it seems like after the second temple's destroyed in eighty seventy, fall of Jerusalem, it kind of have changed or responded differently to the messianic claims and kind of attributed it to themselves in, in some capacity. And then with Islam, well, okay, God's able to save you if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, but where's the justice? Right. So you're just... Or he the, can arbi- arbitrarily save you, right. period. Right. right. Or not. But, yeah, or arbitrarily, not. Arbitrarily, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, uh, there's, again, the, the coherency of, of the system. Uh, Jesus seems to be the only way that this uh, this or this divine man person that we haven't revealed yet uh, is is uh, the one that makes the most sense and still attributes the same qualities uh, to to God so that um, you're not uh, kind of destroying the understanding of of who He is. Right. So from a theological perspective, we might say mm-hmm. uh, Jesus, uh, the the uh, the atonement and all the things that has that have uh, that are required to save us requires that Jesus is both God and man. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's kind of the point he's trying to make right. here. Right. So the problem of human sin requires a solution that fits the problem. Exactly. Right. So he goes on to say, "Of well, who do I say that I am? The question is of the true identity of Jesus. It's a modern, it isn't a modern question. It's a question asked by many people who encountered uh, Jesus personally. In fact, Jesus is also the same person that <laughs> asked this very question to his own disciples. And yeah. so um, uh, Dr. Anderson takes us to a few of those showing, uh, uh, you know, at the very least he was, he was asking those same questions to, to, to his closest uh, followers. Right. And they had certain kind of things to say that uh, consistently um, uh, meet out through the history of, of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. So he asked Peter, who, who do you say I am? Right. He, he asked him, who do men say that I am? And Peter, they give him an answer. You know, Elijah, one of the prophets, whatever. Now he asked Peter, but or he asked them, who do you say I am? Right. Of course, Peter speaks up because that's what Peter does. That's right? what Peter does, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, right? In, in Matthew 16, 16. And, of course, the title, Son of God, is exhausted, uh, exalted enough, as it were, you know, um, 
But over time, however, the disciples came to see its full implications. Right. The Son of God is equal with God. Mm -hmm. right? So who do, who do you say I am? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What do we mean by the son of the living God? Well, they increasingly began to see that it meant that it was he was equal with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and he attributes this uh, knowledge to kind of divine knowledge. And uh, yeah. we're, we're reading through Mark in our family, a devotional, and we're right in the middle. And it's the second feeding of, of thousands. And, you know, the disciples are going... How are we going to feed these people? Jesus is saying, like, oh, don't send them out of the hills. You feed them. What where is going to happen? How about you flip two chapters before or however many, you know, months or years? Yeah. And look, you did it before. He's just going to do it again. Like, come on. Yeah. But, don't you know, you that, that, that's, that, again, if you read the Old Testament, you're like, all right, come on, Jews. Uh, stop wandering in the desert. And now, you know, yeah. I can say it to myself and to say, how many times uh, will it need to run through my head yeah. before I yeah, get really. it to? And, and so it, it points out to the fact that they were so entrenched into the worldview that they had that they just, it was really difficult. Yeah. Difficult for them to see who he really. Oh, he's going to be a king right? that t kicks yeah. out the Romans, right. and and yeah. we'll we'll just rule again like yeah. we did, and we'll you know have gold storage, and we won't we won't show the Babylonians our, our gold stores anymore because yeah. we learned the first time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, it's something <laughs> we learned the hard bigger. way, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's it's this increasing uh, understanding of, of who is this man that even even the the wind uh, listens to him, and uh, I did a, a, ser a sermon that that talked about that um, uh, for uh, revived thoughts and. Um, uh, it's just, it's just interesting how, uh, the, the, even within the scripture of those who are, were closest to him kind of needed, uh, that, uh, the understanding of the, the, the different stories that Jesus taught explained to them and they still didn't get it until uh, obviously the, the Holy Spirit has some capacity to it. And, um, and Dr. Anson doesn't get too much into here, but yeah. there's a reason that there's a Trinity and we're kind of, um, making the case here that, uh, Jesus is, uh, like, or is God, uh, comparison to the father. Mm -hmm. So John refers to, uh, Jesus as uh, the word. Okay. So here's another account. Right? First, um, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right mm -hmm. now we have John. Right? right. Probably to convey the idea that, uh, Jesus is God's self revelation. And so there's a reason why it sounds so familiar of Genesis one, right? It's a, it's a creation point. It's, it's, uh, before there was not uh, before there was everything there was something that something was someone that someone was God mm. and so the, there's a reason that John 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God there's only one and only one God remembering that the first uh, Christians including John were Jewish monotheists you know they'd stand up and say the Shema uh, every uh, every morning and so it's entrenched in them and it's not a a change in who God is this is a different, uh, a, a more full revelation. And so there are, um, uh, different evidences showing even in the old Testament, uh, some the angel of the Lord appearing and, you know, wrestling with people or appearing before, um, uh, different people and accepting worship and, and everything like that. So, so the, uh, the new Testament is when it's more fully realized, more, um, exacerbated. And, and it seems to be, uh, that, uh, when, Peter comes around, or at least when the the testaments, uh, the gospels are being written, um, that uh, that it's kind of commonly accepted. So they've they've kind of worked out the Trinity without you know. Oh, it's not called Trinity in the Bible, right? right but the concepts are there, and <laughs> yeah, exactly. we can we can name it whatever we want after that. 
So there is only one God, and that's the, the monotheism. But even so, there is a personal distinction within the one God, in this case, a distinction between the Father and the Son. Right, and so that's what we see when we, see, when we read in the beginning uh, that um, was right. the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah. So we see this distinction here that he's trying to point out, mm-hmm. right? So since John makes such exalted claims about the Word, you might be wondering well, whether... Uh, sure that he's referring to Jesus, yeah, right? Because right? this is at the very beginning of his gospel, right? Just stop reading. Don't That's go right. further. Yeah. That's the well, point. Well, and so kind of to confirm it, uh, we need only that he tells us, uh, Anderson, to read, uh, you know, keep reading a little further into <laughs> the introduction. And we reach a statement uh, in uh, verse 14 that says, the word became flesh and uh, made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the right. only of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So right. who was this word who uh, was with God and was God? And, See John chapter 2. Yeah, the one <laughs> who became flesh. Well, yeah, he's Jesus. <laughs> right. So we have Peter's uh, declaration. We have John's explanation. Right? Writing in it, yeah. yeah. Next we have... Good old Paul. That's right. The one who made up Christianity on the spot, and everyone seemed to follow him, and we're okay. He wasn't taken out by the, the Jewish-led church. Uh, oh, no. It seems like yeah. uh, like, like like there was some uh, uh, intermixing of, of, of uh, Paul and, and Peter and the disciples as well. So the Apostle Paul, who wasn't one of the original 12 disciples, but experienced a dramatic conversion when, according to his own testimony, encountered Jesus alive after his crucifixion. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me, even though you're killing my people? Well, there's uh, a, a another tie-in to uh, Jesus's body and Jesus's church. And so, uh, you know, again, the, the coherency um, is available to us there as well. So Paul expresses the same high view of Jesus, and in uh, kind of uh, his, uh, his talking here, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, so nature, uh, ontology there, uh, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be grasped. Mm-hmm. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So notice here in Philippians 2 that Paul is making the claim that both Jesus was uh, the very nature of God, and he took on the very nature of uh, humanity, right. right? So two natures right. is what we it's, see here. It's not, it's not a, uh, a fake appearance. It's not, uh, well, he, he kind of looked like he had a body, but he was not really there, kind of that Gnostic understanding that seemed to drive Gnosticism crazy with, <laughs> with this, this idea of uh, Jesus being almost a ghost. But, uh, but yes, uh, uh, something that he retains his, his godhoodship and then um, also his hum- humanity uh, yeah. is taken on as well. <laughs> and so Anderson says, well, you know, somebody might say this is all very interesting, but people believed all kind <laughs> of strange things back then. And now. (laughs) So why then should we give, you know, their beliefs any credit? Well, he says it's crucial to recognize just how surprising and unlikely these beliefs about Jesus were even for those people back then. Right. right? Jesus' disciples were first century Jewish monotheists. Right. They believed in a transcendent personal God who created the universe out of nothing. And they treated with utmost seriousness the Old Testament command to worship and serve only God, right? So that's the perspective that they had. So given their worldview, they were predisposed to agree with Jesus' critics, right? 
that it was uh, blasphemous for any human to uh, claim equality with God. Yet their encounters with Jesus led them to the incredible conclusion, Anderson tells us, that Jesus really was the divine son of God. Indeed, they came to the point where they were willing to worship him. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a, that's a, a big point because even in, with encounters with um, angel messengers, you know, the, the people with wings that we always attribute <laughs> them to, um, e- even the angels stop people and say, no, 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 no. I am just a created person just like you, uh, in different uh, uh, roles, but, uh, but the only person to, to worship is, is, uh, is God. So who did he say he was? That's right, the question so, that right. so we're going to ask. So who did Jesus him. say he was, right? right? So yeah. kind of important here, right? Yeah. So yeah. who do men say I am? Well, okay, we, we got that. Uh, we got Peter's testimony. We got John's testimony. We've got the Apostle Paul's testimony, right? And he tells us, actually, that he could have gone on and given us a whole lot more, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of what uh, the folks had to say uh, about Jesus, right. right? So the next question is, who did Jesus say? That so many uh, devout first century Jews became worshipers of a fellow human being begs for a satisfying explanation. Well, he's just a really good motivational speaker. Uh, well, he seems to know medicine really good. So he, he can give us two tablets and tells us to call him in the morning. That he's he's good, good about that. Exercising demons from us. All right. But we can't help but ask the question, what was it about Jesus that convinced them? What was it that that brought them out of, out of the... Uh, out of the the synagogues and into the church, and so much so that Hebrews is written about. Don't go back to the synagogues because there's nothing for you now. If you understand the gospel message, this is where you're kind of supposed to be. Yeah. So why? Uh, and with that, why don't we uh, leave it there for now with this question, right? Who who did Jesus say he was? And pick up uh, pick up the rest of this chapter right. next time. Can't wait a week. Gospel of John, then Mark, <laughs> or, you know, Mark, then maybe Matthew, if you want to get the Jewish understanding, and then, uh, you know, Luke, you know, especially if you're a doctor. So, uh, and then go on right from Acts, Luke and Acts. Perfect. All right. So th- thanks for joining us. Thanks for um, uh, continuing along with the book. We're almost done with this one and we'll figure out what uh, we want to do next as well. Um, but uh, we thank you for joining us. Yeah. See you next time.